Chapter 8 of the Flying Inn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicola K. The Flying Inn by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 8. Vox Populi, Vox Dei. I am sure, Mr. Levison, the secretary had said, with a somewhat constrained smile, that after the eloquent and epoch-making speech to which we have listened, there will be some questions asked, and we hope to have a debate afterwards. I am sure somebody will ask a question. Then he looked interrogatively at one weary-looking gentleman in the fourth row and said, Mr. Hinch? Mr. Hinch shook his head with a pallid passion of refusal, wonderful to watch, and said, I couldn't. I really couldn't. We should be very pleased, said Mr. Levison, if any lady would ask a question. In the silence that followed, it was somewhat psychologically borne in on the whole audience that one particular great large lady, as the lecturer would say, sitting at the end of the second row was expected to ask a question. Her own waxwork immobility was witness both to the expectation and its disappointment. Are there any other questions? asked Mr. Levison, as if there had been any yet. He seemed to speak with a slight air of relief. There was a sort of stir at the back of the hall, and halfway down one side of it. Choked whispers could be heard of, Now then, Jarge! Go it, Jarge! Is there any questions? Gar! Mr. Levison looked up with an alertness somewhat akin to alarm. He realized for the first time that a few quite common men in coarse, unclean clothes had somehow strolled in through the open door. They were not true rustics, but the semi-rustic laborers that linger about the limits of the large watering places. There was no Mr. among them. There was a general tendency to call everybody George. Mr. Levison saw the situation and yielded to it. He modeled himself on Lord Ivywood and did much what he would have done in all cases, but with a timidity Lord Ivywood would not have shown. And the same social training that made him ashamed to be with such men made him ashamed to own his shame. The same modern spirit that taught him to loathe such rags also taught him to lie about his loathing. I am sure we should be very glad, he said nervously, if any friends from outside care to join in our inquiry. Of course, we're all Democrats. And he looked round at the grand ladies with a ghastly smile. And believe in the voice of the people, and so on. If our friend at the back of the hall will put his question briefly, we need not insist, I think, on his putting it in writing. There were renewed hoarse encouragements to George, that rightly christened champion, and he wavered forward on legs tied in the middle with string. He did not appear to have had any seat since his arrival, and made his remarks standing halfway down what we may call the central aisle. Well, I want to ask the proprietor, he began. 
"'Questions,' said Mr. Levison, swiftly seizing a chance for that construction of debate, which is the main business of a modern chairman, "'must be asked of the chair if they are points of order. "'If they concern the address, they should be asked of the lecturer.' "'Well, I asked the lecturer,' said the patient Jarge, "'whether it ain't right that when you have the thing outside, "'you should have the thing inside.' Horse applause at the back. Mr. Levison was evidently puzzled and already suspicious that something was quite wrong. But the enthusiasm of the prophet of the moon sprang up instantly at any sort of question and swept the chairman along with it. But it is the essence of our whole message, he cried, spreading out his arms to embrace the world, that the outer manifestation should be one with the inner manifestation. My friends, it is this very truth our friend has stated that is responsible for our apparent lack of symbolism in Islam. We appear to neglect the symbol because we insist on the satisfactory symbol. My friend in the middle will walk round all our mosques and say loudly, Where is the statue of Allah? But can my friend in the middle really execute a complete and generally approved statue of Allah? Miss Sisra Ammon sat down greatly satisfied with his answer, but it was doubted by many whether he had conveyed the satisfaction to his friend in the middle. That seeker after truth wiped his mouth with the back of his hand with an unsatisfied air and said, No offense, sir. But ain't it the law, sir, that if you have that outside, we're all right? I came in ear as natural as could be. But Gorlum, I never see a place like this afore. Hoarse laughter behind. No apology is needed, my friend, cried the eastern sage eagerly. I can conceive you are not perhaps duly conversant with such schools of truth. But the law is all. The law is Allah, the inmost unity of... Well, ain't it the law? repeated the dogged George, and every time he mentioned the law, the poor men, who are its chief victims, applauded loudly. I'm not one to make a fuss. I never was one to make a fuss. I'm a law-abiding man, I am. More applause. Ain't it the law that if so be such is your sign and such is your profession... You ought to serve us. I fear I not quite follow, cried the eager Turk. I ought to serve us, shouted a throng of thick voices from the back of the hall, which was already much more crowded than before. Serve you, cried Miss Sisra, leaping up like a spring released. The holy prophet came from heaven to serve you. The virtue and valor of a thousand years, my friend, has had no hunger but to serve you. We are of all faiths, the most the faith of service. Our highest prophet is no more than the servant of God, as I am, as you all are. Even for our symbol we choose a satellite, and honor the moon because it only serves the earth and does not pretend to be the sun. I'm sure, cried Mr. Levison, jumping up with a tactful grin, 
that the lecturer has answered this last point in a most eloquent and effective way, and the motor-cars are waiting for some of the ladies who have come from some distance, and I really think the proceedings... All the artistic ladies were already getting on their wraps, with faces varying from bewilderment to blank terror. Only Lady Joan lingered, trembling with unexplained excitement. The hitherto speechless Hinch had slid up to the chairman's seat and whispered to him, "'You must get all the ladies away. I can't imagine what's up, but something's up.' "'Well,' repeated the patient George, "'so be it's the law. Where is it?' "'Ladies and gentlemen,' said Mr. Levison in his most ingratiating manner, "'I think we have had a most delightful evening, and—' "'No, we ain't!' cried a new and nastier voice from a corner of the room. "'Where is it?' "'That's what we got a right to know,' said the law-abiding George. "'Where is it?' "'Where's what?' cried the nearly demented secretary in the chair. "'What do you want?' The law-abiding Mr. George made a half-turn and a gesture towards the man in the corner and said, "'What's yours, Jim?' "'I'll have a drop of scotch,' said the man in the corner. Lady Enid Wimpole, who had lingered a little in loyalty to Joan, the only other lady still left, caught both her wrists and cried in a thrilling whisper, "'Oh, we must go to the car, dear. They're using the most awful language.' Away on the wettest edge of the sands by the sea, the prints of two wheels and four hoofs were being slowly washed away by a slowly rising tide, which was indeed the only motive of the man Humphrey Pump leading the donkey cart and leading it almost ankle-deep in water. "'I hope you're sober again now,' he said with some seriousness to his companion, a huge man, walking heavily and even humbly, with a straight sword swinging to and fro at his hip, for honestly it was a mug's game to go and stick up the old sign before that tin place. I haven't often spoken to you like this, Captain, but I don't believe any other man in the county could get you out of the hole as I can. But to go down there and frighten the ladies, why, there's been nothing so silly here since Bishop's Folly. You could hear the ladies screaming before we left. I heard worse than that long before we left, said the large man without lifting his head. I heard one of them laugh. Christ, do you think I shouldn't hear her laugh? There was a silence. I didn't mean to speak sharp, said Humphrey Pump, with that incorruptible kindliness which was the root of his Englishry, and may yet save the soul of the English. But it's the truth. I was pretty well bothered about how to get out of this business. You're braver than I am, you see, and I own I was frightened about both of us. If I hadn't known my way to the lost tunnel, I should be fairly frightened still. Known your way to what? asked the captain, lifting his red head for the first time. Oh, you know all about no more Ivywood's lost tunnel, said Pump carelessly. Why, we all used to look for it when we were boys. Only I happened to find it. Have mercy on an exile, said Dalroy humbly. I don't know which hurt him most, the things he forgets or the things he remembers. Mr. Pump was silent for a little while, and then said more seriously than usual, Well, the people from London say you must put up placards and statues and subscriptions and epitaphs and the Lord knows what to the people who found some new trick and made it come off. But only a man 
that knows his own land for forty miles round knows what a lot of people and clever people too there were who found new tricks and had to hide them because they didn't come off there was dr boone up by gill and hugby who held out against dr collison and the vaccination his treatment saved sixty patients who had got smallpox and dr collison's killed ninety-two patients who hadn't got anything but boone had to keep it dark naturally because all his lady patients grew mustaches it was a result of the treatment but it wasn't a result he wishes to dwell on then there was old dean arthur who discovered balloons if ever a man did he discovered them long before they were discovered but people were suspicious about such things just then there was a revival of the witch business in spite of all the parsons and he had to sign a paper saying where he'd got the notion well it stands to reason you wouldn't like to sign a paper saying you'd got it from the village idiot when you were both blowing soap bubbles and that's all he could have signed for he was an honest gentleman the poor old dean then there was jack arlingham and the diving bell but you remember all about that well it was just the same with the man that made this tunnel one of the mad ivywoods there's many a man captain that has a statue in the great london squares for helping to make the railway trains there's many a man has his name in westminster abbey for doing something in discovering steamboats poor old ivywood discovered both at once and had to be put under control he had a notion that a railway train might be made to rush right into the sea and turn into a steamboat and it seemed all right according as he worked it out but his family were so ashamed of the thing that they didn't like the tunnel even mentioned i don't think anybody knows where it is but me and bungie robinson we shall be there in a minute or two they've thrown the rocks about at this end and let the thick plantation grow at the other but i've got a racehorse through before now to save it from colonel cheapstow's little games and i think i can manage this donkey honestly i think it's the only place we'll be safe in after what we've left behind us at the pebblewick but it's the best place in the world there's no doubt for lying low and starting afresh here we are you think you can't get behind that rock but you can in fact you have Delroy found himself with some bewilderment round the corner of a rock and in a long bore or barrel of blackness that ended in a very dim spot of green. Hearing the hoofs of the ass and the feet of his friend behind him, he turned his head but could see nothing but the pitch darkness of a closed coal cellar. He turned again to the dim green speck and marching forward was glad to see it grow larger and brighter like a big emerald till he came out on a throng of trees mostly thin but growing so thickly and so close to the cavernous entrance of the tunnel that it was quite clear the place was meant to be choked up by forests and forgotten the light that came glimmering through the trees was so broken and tremulous that it was hard to tell whether it was daybreak or moonrise i know there's water here said pump they couldn't keep it out of the stonework when they made the tunnel and old ivywood hit the hydraulic engineer with a spirit level with the bit of covert here and the sea behind us we ought to be able to get food of one kind or another when the cheese has given out and donkeys can eat anything by the way he added with some embarrassment you don't mind my saying it captain but i think we'd better keep that room for rare occasions it's the best room in england and may be the last if these mad games are going on it'll do us good to feel it's there so we can have it when we want it the cask's still nearly full 
Dalroy put out his hand and shook the others. Hump, he said seriously, you're right. It's a sacred trust for humanity, and we'll only drink it ourselves to celebrate great victories. In token of which, I will take a glass now to celebrate our glorious victory over Lebison and his tin tabernacle. He drained one glass and then sat down on the cask as if to put temptation behind him. His blue ruminant bull's eye seemed to plunge deeper and deeper into the emerald twilight of the trees in front of him, and it was long before he spoke again. At last he observed, I think you said, Hump, that a friend of yours, a gentleman named Bungie Robinson, I think, was also a habitué here? Yes, he knew the way, answered Pump, leading the donkey to the most suitable patch of pasturage. May we, do you think, have the pleasure of a visit from Mr. Robinson? inquired the captain. Not unless they're jolly careless up in Blackstone jails, replied Pump. And he moved the cheese well into the arch of the tunnel. Dalroy still sat with his square chin on his hand, staring at the mystery of the little wood. You seem absent-minded, captain, remarked Humphrey. The deepest thoughts are all commonplaces, said Dalroy. That is why I believe in democracy, which is more than you do, you foul, blood-stained old British Tory. And the deepest commonplace of all is that vanitas vanitatem, which is not pessimism, but is really the opposite of pessimism. It is man's futility that makes us feel he must be a god. And I think of this tunnel and how the poor old lunatic walked about on this grass, watching it being built, the soul in him on fire with the future. And he saw the whole world changed and the seas thronged with his new shipping. And now, and Dalroy's voice changed and broke, now there is good pasture for the donkey, and it is very quiet here. Yes, said Pump, in some way that conveyed his knowledge that the captain was thinking of other things also. The captain went on dreamily. And I think about another Lord Ivywood recorded in history who also had a great vision. For it is a great vision, after all, and though the man is a prig, he is brave. He also wants to drive a tunnel between east and west to make the Indian Empire more British to effect what he calls the orientation of England, and I call the ruin of Christendom. And I am wondering just now whether the clear intellect and courageous will of a madman will be strong enough to burst and drive that tunnel, as everything seems to show at this moment that it will, or whether there indeed be enough life and growth in your England to leave it at last as this is left, buried in English forests and wasted by an English sea. The silence fell between them again, and again there was only the slight sound the animal made in eating. As Dalroy had said, it was very quiet there. But it was not quiet in Pebblewick that night. When the riot act was read, and all the people who had seen the signboard outside fought all the people who hadn't seen the signboard outside, or when babies and scientists next morning, seeking for shells and other common objects of the seashore, found that their study included fragments of the outer clothing of Levison and scraps of corrugated iron. End of chapter 8 Recording by Nicola Kay